You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. To the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Gospel of John, chapter 11. Focus today will be on verses 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus, has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, boldly we approach the throne of grace in Christ's name, by His blood, and that plead on all our faltering and fumbling as we've determined to take up our cross and follow You, that as we come with all of our fears, earnest and urgent though they appear to us, That by your word right now, you would strengthen our faith, assure us of your love, as the glory of your Son is put before us. Do this so that that faith that is strengthened as we see Christ redounds to the glory of Christ. We don't ask this for our sake. Your Son is worthy of all glory. 
So have mercy on us sinners now. Magnify Christ in us today, Lord. And for those who in their sins are as spiritually dead as Lazarus was in the grave, may your voice be heard in the preaching of the word and call them out of darkness and into light, out of death and into life. In the strong name of Jesus we pray, amen. How many people did Jesus raise from the dead during His earthly ministry? You remember when John was in prison, John the Baptist, his faith is faltering. He sends his disciples to ask, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus answered, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Matthew eleven three through 6 The dead are raised up, plural, the dead. When we consult the Gospels, we only have three recorded instances. There's the raising up of Jairus' daughter, Jairus being a ruler of a synagogue. See that in Matthew 9, Mark 5, Luke 8, not in John. Second, there's the resurrection of the son of the widow of Nain. Only Luke records that instance, Luke 8, 7, excuse me. And then third, we have here the resurrection of Lazarus, only in John. Now, these are the only recorded instances. We have no idea how many Jesus may have resurrected in total. But I do believe the plural that we see in Matthew 11, the dead are raised up, does give strong reason to believe there were many more than these three recorded instances. John will close telling us, There were many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John 21, 25. I would not be surprised to in glory learn that many of those other things that were not written included resurrections from the dead. But even should it be the case that Jesus only raised these three persons during His earthly ministry, even should that be the case, it's clear that each gospel writer is highly selective in which resurrections he chooses to speak about. Only Luke records two. And Luke and John record an instance that none of the other gospel writers write about. So, with every sign that's been recorded in John, and especially with this sign, a resurrection from the dead, we should be asking ourselves, why did John choose this particular sign? And now, why did John choose this resurrection? Remember, the first half of John is known as the book of signs, John 1 through 12. It contains seven signs which are central to the purpose of this book. 
John expressly tells us why he selected these particular signs. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So only seven signs are recorded in the first half of this book. And then for the climactic sign in the book of signs, you have the resurrection of Lazarus. Before you get to the second half of John, the book of glory, where the sole focus is the death and resurrection of our Lord. So you can see something of why John would choose this. It builds and it prepares you for the second half. Timeline-wise, this happens just before. But now we've just relocated the question. Why has God ordained it that this resurrection comes so close before Jesus' death and resurrection? Why is this sign highlighted in particular still? So all these signs and wonders work towards this end, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in His name. Speaks to the purpose of John. Whenever we're talking about purpose, we're looking at the question of why. And it's peculiar when we come to this climactic sign of the book of signs, there are three whys for us in our text. They're not all exactly whys of ultimate purpose, but they all relate to that. When we look at this last sign, the three whys, the three answers we get as to why this sign for glory, for love, and for faith. Why the resurrection of Lazarus? For glory, for love, and for faith. As we turn to the text, I want you to notice I've divided into three couplets. These two halves joined together by and. So in verses 1 through 6, we have news of Lazarus, logic of the Lord's love. 7 through 13, back to Judea, waking from sleep. Verses 14 through 16, joy for belief and resolve to die. So in one way, you have six points. But these couplets are joined together each time. I think you'll see they help to bring forth a contrast quite often between Jesus' disposition and attitude and that of his friends, or the disciples. So under the first couplet, we begin with news of Lazarus, verses 1 through 3. News of Lazarus, logic of the Lord's love, first news of Lazarus, verses 1 through 3. First three verses all are setting up this news, this message that comes to Jesus. The news doesn't happen until the very end of verse 3, though. Lord, he whom you love is ill. In order for that to make sense, Some introductions need to be made, and they are made with the most peculiar of progressions. So you begin with a certain man, you learn his name is Lazarus, then you learn that he's from Bethany, Bethany which is the village of Mary and Martha, Mary and Martha of whom the Mary is the one who anointed our Lord, and they're sisters of Lazarus, and they send message to, you see this is just a weird progression. 
Lazarus to Bethany, Bethany to two sisters, two sisters, one of whom is Mary, the Mary who anointed the Lord. Those two sisters are sisters of Lazarus. They send word to Jesus. I feel like Esau, whenever Jacob is bringing his train before him, and Esau asks, what do you mean by all this company that I meet? What do you mean by all these introductions? What do you mean by this company that I meet? And you've arranged how they progressed before me in a certain way. You're wanting to communicate something. What is this about? What do you mean by this company that I meet? First notice that Mary's highlighted. The anointing that John refers to here, he hasn't spoken of yet. He speaks of it in chapter 12. But he refers to it here as if his audience already knows it. What's beautiful is how that testifies to the truth our Lord spoke that's recorded in Matthew and Mark's accounts. John doesn't mention this, except that he illustrates the reality of it by the way he speaks to his audience. Matthew and Mark both record, Truly I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So here's John's gospel going out. Who's this Mary and Martha? This is the Mary who anointed the the Lord. Ah, we know that Mary. What's striking about this is Mary is known more for her preparation for our Lord's death than she is for the resurrection of her brother. This is setting you up to understand that what's happening with Lazarus is speaking to things yet to unfold in a more striking manner than many of the previous signs. This sign is set up to magnify the next. But John's referring everything in terms of Mary and then highlighting these two sisters also sets us up to see a contrast between them and Jesus. Before I go into that though, it does, it does frame this entire narrative in terms of Jesus' interactions with these sisters rather than Lazarus. This sign is something that's done to Lazarus. But the significance of it is unpacked in his interactions with Lazarus's sisters. Doesn't have a lot of interactions with Lazarus. He's dead. Lazarus, come forth. That's it. What the significance, the meaning of the sign is, it comes across in his interactions with Martha in particular. Listen to Jesus's conversation with her. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, 
who is coming into the world. The significance of what Jesus does to Lazarus is unpacked in his, what he says to Martha. And as I said, this also serves to set up a contrast between Jesus and these sisters. Look now to the logic of our Lord's love. Verse 4. When Jesus heard it, He said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. Contrast the way Jesus speaks in light of this illness with, with their plea. Lord, He whom you love is ill. In between, but when Jesus heard it. You get the sense they're overwhelmed with this illness. They're concerned about it. It weighs heavy on them. I don't think it's too much to say that there's a note of urgency, even despair. He whom you love is ill. And Jesus' response is one filled with peace and patience. This illness is not for death. This brings us to the first purpose statement. The first why. Why the sickness? It's not for death. It's for glory. Someone can object. Understandably, not death. That's exactly where the sickness does lead. It leads to death. Well, yes and no. But the no to death is much louder than the yes to death. It's not ultimately leading to death. And saints... This truth is universally true of all those whom Jesus loves. Seated as what Jesus is within this particular occasion concerning Lazarus and his earthly ministry and these signs and wonders magnifying his name, even still, this is universally true for all who are in Christ. Whatever sickness lies before you, It is not ultimately leading to death. Even your death doesn't lead to death. If you have a sickness right now and it leads to death, ultimately it doesn't lead to death. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Death is an evil And even death works towards good. Every lamb called by the good shepherd may know that even though he leads them through the valley of the shadow of death, they need fear no evil. Paul goes on in that glorious chapter of Romans to say, Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in them. In all of them, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This sickness is not for death. It is for glory. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 4. That purpose statement corresponds richly with the one Jesus gave for healing the blind man concerning the blind man in chapter 9. 9 verses 2 and 3. The disciples ask, Who sinned that this man was born blind, he or his parents? And Jesus answers, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What that involves, the works of God being displayed in him, was unpacked by Jesus in chapter 5 after he healed the invalid man, whenever he answered why why it is he does this on the Sabbath. And it's because he's working and his father's working. And he tells them, For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing in greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but the Son has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Isn't it peculiar how the language Jesus uses here, this illness is not for death, it's for glory, throws you back to what Jesus said about the blind man, and the language there the works of God might be displayed, throws you back to the healing of the invalid man and all the way back at that first feast, that undisclosed feast that we came to in the festival cycle. All the way back there, Jesus is talking about His works being done so that you might marvel honoring the Son as you honor the Father. And He uses language that anticipates the resurrection of the dead. The Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. It's especially all the more striking when you see Jesus didn't just say that once, He emphasized it again. Jesus goes on immediately after those verses in John 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. Now, he's speaking of spiritual resurrection that's happening right then, but it's going to be blatantly clear that he has that kind of authority when he says, Lazarus, come forth. He goes on, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. He goes on, Do not marvel at this, an hour is coming, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So let's put all this together now. This illness is not for death. It's for glory. It means there's going to be a work done, a work given by the Father to the Son, a work the Father is doing and that the Son is doing that manifest 
who Christ is. They glorify Him in that way. Through this illness, the Son of God is to be glorified. This illness is not for death. It is for glory. This illness is not so that Lazarus may die. It is so that the Son of God might be glorified. You are Christ, dear saints. Don't think of your life in terms of you. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Whatever you're going through, it's not about you anymore. It's about God and He will be glorified. This sickness is not for death. It is for the glory of the Son of Man. The Son of God. And this brings us to the second why, which is a purpose statement related to the purpose. Why? This illness is not for death, it's for the glory of God. And now a different kind of why that unpacks this one, really. Jesus, we're told, loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, verse 11, verse 5. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed. Jesus loves Mary and Martha, so He stayed. If you're not getting the purpose, flip it. Why does Jesus stay? Because He loves them. Jesus stayed because. The motive, the why of His behavior is His love. Notice how it receives a fourfold emphasis. His waiting. He stayed two days longer. Verse 7. Then, after, He loved them. So He stayed. Marvel at the peculiar logic of our Lord's love. He loved them. So He stayed. How is this love? If you're asking that, Ask yourself what your objection, your puzzlement, your question says you love. The reason this puzzles us, there's a level which we have to be honest. We face this puzzle. The reason this puzzles us is because we love our ease. We love our comfort. We love pleasure. We love peace. We love our well-being and our health. And so we think... If Jesus loved us, He would work for those things. It is telling to place, in contrast, Jesus' motivation for staying with the disciples' motivation for staying in verse 8. Jesus loves them so He stays. Why do they want to stay? Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Why does this puzzle us? Here's the thing. I don't think the disciples' answer puzzles us. Oh, they're trying to kill Jesus. It makes sense. Don't go there. They might kill you. Why does that make sense to us? Because we're selfish. Why does Jesus' staying not make sense to us? Because we're selfish. The funny thing is we look at Jesus and we say, He's being selfish. When the reason why we object that way is our selfishness. Whenever Jesus' motive was love. How is this love? We'll go back to the first purpose statement. Why this illness? Not for death. 
for glory. The most loving thing God can do for us is magnify Himself. The most loving thing God can do for you is not to lead you to the shallow pool of yourself, but to the infinite ocean of delight that is Himself. The most loving thing God can do for you is to take away your phone, no more selfies, to remove every mirror from your life so that you're not obsessed with yourself, but to draw your gaze to Him, not to turn His attention wholly to us, but to turn our attention wholly to Him. That is what would be loving. The most loving thing God can do for us is not to make much of us, but to make much of Himself. This is for the glory of God. And so because He loves them, He waits that that glory might be more greatly displayed. John Piper writes, How many people today, even Christians, would murmur at Jesus for callously letting Lazarus die and putting him and Mary and Martha and others through the pain and misery of those days? And if people today saw that this was motivated by Jesus' desire to magnify the glory of God, how many would call this harsh or unloving? What this shows is how far above the glory of God most people value pain-free lives. For most people, love is whatever puts human value and human well-being at the center. So Jesus' behavior is unintelligible to them. But let us not tell Jesus what love is. Let us not instruct Him how He should love us and make us central. Let us learn from Jesus what love is and what our true well-being is. Love is doing whatever you need to help people see and savor the glory of God in Christ Forever and ever. Love keeps God central because the soul was made for God. This is the peculiar logic of the Lord's love. Because He loves, He stays. And He stays for His glory. Oh, how God loved Job. And Jacob. Joseph. Oh, how he loved David and Daniel. How he loved Mary and Martha. Because he loves, he stays. Don't doubt his love. When his hand is stayed, why this pain? Why this suffering? For glory. Second couplet. Back to Judea, waking from sleep. Back to Judea first. Jesus tells His disciples, verse 7, let us go to Judea again. No mention of Bethany, no mention of Lazarus. Let us go back to Judea. Yes, Jesus goes back to Bethany, which is in Judea, because He loves Lazarus. Yes. But the return to Bethany 
is framed in terms of something bigger. Back to Judea. I hope you hear an echo here of what is expressed in Luke 9.51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Main objective here is not Bethany. It's Judea. The disciples questioned this decision based on recent events, verse 8. They were just seeking to stone you. Back up, festival cycle. Begins John 5. Undisclosed feast. They seek to arrest him and kill him. That's made clear there. We fast forward. It's only six months away from Jesus' death and resurrection now. at The feast of, of uh, booths. And they seek to kill him. Fast forward, only three months now. It's a few months away. Feast of Hanukkah, Feast of Dedication, Feast of Lights. And they take up stones to stone him, which they're referring to now. The hostility grows every time he goes back for one of these feasts. Now, our text has already recalled chapter 9 and verse 3. The blind man, that Jesus did this so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why he's blind. Immediately following 9 and verse 3, this is what Jesus says. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now look at what Jesus' answer was to his disciples here when they say, they're trying to stone you. Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Fast forward. John 12. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the light does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. What is Jesus saying by this answer? It's daytime. The light is with you. It's time to work. I'm working the works that my father is working. He's got work ahead of me. It's daytime. I'm here. That means work. That means for you, follow. Don't stumble. Follow. The second part of the couplet answers what the work is. He goes to wake Lazarus. And note that collectively, Lazarus is our friend. But as far as waking him, that's something Jesus does alone. I go to awaken him. Friends, however dear you are to me, I cannot wake you. From your spiritual slumber, I cannot wake you from the sleep of death. You sense this. You have friends, you have loved ones, you have children. However much you love them, you cannot wake them from their spiritual slumber. You have dear ones that have died in the Lord. You cannot do anything for them. Your hope is only that He who is the resurrection and the life will rouse them from the sleep of death. 
Only Jesus can raise the dead. Spiritually, physically. The disciples misunderstand Jesus to say that Lazarus is resting. And so they're hopeful for his recovery. He will recover, verse 12. Some think the misunderstanding is because the language of sleep concerning death is rare in the Old Testament. It's used, but it's rare. Whereas in the New, it is replete. You see it again and again. It's the dominant way death is spoken of. Jesus makes death a nap. So some think that's the reason for their confusion. I don't think that's the case at all. I think the reason they're confused is because Jesus said, this illness is not for death. And now he says, Lazarus is sleeping. Oh, he's going to recover. Lazarus is taking the sleep, though he makes plain to them that only Jesus can wake one from. Dear souls, all must sleep this sleep. You will sleep this sleep. And the night hastens quickly. Your life is but a day. The night hastens quickly. Death is certain. And just as certain is that Jesus is the only hope you have to be raised from the dead. And make no mistake, all will be raised from the dead. The wicked and the just. But you only want to be raised if you've already been crucified and risen with Christ in this life. Because on that day, if you have not been raised again, you'll be raised to die forever. You're guaranteed not, more, not one more day, and even if you should receive another day, your days are short and numbered. Sleep is certain, an eternal sleep. A sleep of eternal torment and death if you are not in Christ. This brings us to the final couplet, verses 14 through 16. First part of which, joy for belief. Jesus is glad for their belief. And one puzzling explanation follows another, doesn't it, in this episode? Why is Lazarus ill? For the glory of God. Why does Jesus wait? Because He loves them. Why... Do they go when the Jews are seeking to stone him, to wake Lazarus? Why is Lazarus sleeping? He's sleeping the sleep of death. And now Lazarus has died because he waited. And he's glad he's waited. He's glad he wasn't there. The implication is Jesus left immediately. He would have been there. He would have just healed Lazarus. But he's glad he's waited so that they might believe. What are they to believe? Jesus made that plain with speaking to Martha. That he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And that that means he is the resurrection. And he is the life. Better for them that Jesus be exalted than Lazarus be spared death. Think of that next time you're suffering, dear saint. Your suffering might be the means of Christ being glorified in another and their strengthened faith.
Jesus' love works for faith. A faith that is strengthened as it sees Christ's glory magnified. And when faith sees that glory, faith then magnifies the glory that it beholds. So faith both sees glory, glory and it glorifies what is seen. Love works towards faith that sees glory, that then glorifies what it sees. Love not only displays glory, love displays that glory so that our faith beholding that glory redounds in praise of what is seen. With this, I think here you get a window into a peculiar attribute that is, it doesn't receive enough attention. Shortly we'll see that Jesus wept. It's a beautiful window into the humanity of our Lord. But here I think you get this window into his divinity. Lazarus has died. And he is glad, understanding the ultimate purpose behind all of this. This unpacks for you something of the glorious doctrine of the impassibility of God. Impassibility of God means God is without passions. Meaning he's without emotions in the sense that God is not moved by something outside himself. In other words, your God is not moody. Think if the person next to you could alter God's mood. And that person, that person very well could. I mean, they're a sinner. God is not moved by anything outside Himself. Our God is not only the eternal fountain of joy, He is the ever unrestricted fountain of joy. The joy of God is never dampened, never altered, never diverted, never halted, never squelched, never lessened. Our God is the blessed God eternally and inviably so. Yes, as we look at His disposition towards sin and in the moment, we see He's angry towards sin. But... Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a God of all wisdom. He's a God of omniscience and omnipotence. And so whenever He looks at sin, He's not frustrated. He's not wrangling His hands in worry. He's not fretful because He knows every sin will be dealt with. Has been dealt with either on the cross or will be dealt with in hell and in everything. God will be glorified above all. Some are troubled by the doctrine of impassibility, but this is good news. Whenever you flee like Mary and Martha in the midst of your despair and urgent need, your Savior responds in perfect peace and patience. How often is it whenever your child falls, there are absolutely no tears, 
until they see the panic in your eyes. Dear children of God, your father's eyes are never panicked. Dear lambs of God, your shepherd never has a look of fear or worry, consternation, fretfulness on his face. Perfect peace, perfect patience, he replies every time you pray in those instances. It's true. We sometimes say, we will never know why this thing on this earth. We'll never know why. Well, you will always know the ultimate why. You have it right here. Why? Why this? Why this sickness? Why this suffering? Why this pain, Lord? And every time you can rest assured, you know this ultimate why. For His glory. For love. And for faith. Our God is not moody. He is immovable. His anger is hot. His jealousy fierce. His love immense. But all of these things spring from within Himself. Because your bad news never makes God sad. His good news is always there to make you glad. Be glad that Jesus is glad even in the face of death. Why is He glad? Because everything is working according to plan. This is for their faith as it is for my glory. And all of this for His love. So Jesus tells them, Lazarus is dead, but let us go. So we come to the last half of the second of the last couplet, verse 16. Jesus is rejoicing. Thomas is resolved. <sighs> what a contrast there is between Jesus' gladness, I'm glad, and Thomas's grimness. Let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas, no doubt, is standing in place for the twelve here, expressing their thoughts. And he's looking at this, he's looking at it in terms of the big picture. He gets it. He's not thinking of Bethany, he's thinking of Judea. He's not thinking of Lazarus' plight, he's thinking of Jesus' plight. He isn't focused on Lazarus being raised, he's focused on Jesus going down to the grave. It's only in John that we get something of Thomas's personality unpacked for us. In all the other Gospels, Thomas is just a name and a list. But it's because of John that we know him as Doubting Thomas. That's pretty unfair, isn't it? I mean, we don't speak of Peter as sinking rock. He doubted. We don't speak of Peter as denying Peter. And I think as you look at Thomas, underneath, intermingled with this grimness, there's something beautiful and true here. Let us, go, let us also go, that we may die with him. Thomas is a realist. He reminds me of Petalglum in uh, Lewis's Narnia, who was... Uh, Molded after Lewis's gardener, Fred uh, Paxford. And Paxford was described by some as a 
cheerful, eternal pessimist. Here he is, he's a gardener, and he's always making these horrid prognostications about the weather. Like this is just, the weather is going to, and everything's going to die. And it's, it's, so he's always like this pessimistic kind of bent. And yet, he would carry on his work, just carry it on, singing hymns so loud that the neighbors would complain. That's something of Thomas. Thomas may be grim, but he's resolute. And it's true that this bold resolution will falter once the shepherd is struck. But hey, once the shepherd is struck, all the sheep scatter. Nonetheless, Thomas here demonstrates the loyalty and courage, the heart of a true disciple to take up their cross and follow after their Lord, no matter the cost. But for the disciples of Christ to truly walk that road of discipleship, their grimness must be traded for gladness, which is the very reason Jesus has done this, so that they might see and believe He is the resurrection and the life. And because we look at Christ who went to the cross for the joy that was set before Him, we can take up our cross for the joy set before us. None of them know at this point that Jesus must return to Judea for Bethany. Stop two must be made in order for stop one to be made. The future is determining the past. If Jesus is not resolute on this future, the cross, then this past event, raising from the grave, means nothing. If Jesus wasn't going to his cross, he couldn't first stop off at Lazarus' grave. Jesus must die in order to be the resurrection and life. Otherwise, Lazarus is just going to be raised to die eternally. If Jesus doesn't die, then things are truly grim. There's no point in any resolute obedience, courage, and loyalty. It's all in vain. John is written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. And the life you're given in Christ is His resurrection life. You die with Him and you are raised with Him. But is John written... For the faith of saints or sinners? Is it written for the faith of unbelievers to come to faith or the faith of believers to strengthen their faith? Is it written to kindle new faith or stoke established faith? Both. This is the second clear instance where Jesus and these signs and the message of John, it's established this is not just about unbelievers. This is about believers. The first instance was the sign that only they beheld when he walked out to them on the water. The storm ceased and immediately they arrived at their destination. And it's striking that after that, we see many disciples leave Jesus because of his hard words. But Peter speaking for the twelve minus one, the son of perdition, says, you have the words of eternal life and we have believed. 
and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So here Jesus is now telling those who believe that He's glad He stayed so that they might believe. Saints, this revelation, this sign that Jesus is the resurrection and the life is for your faith. It's for your faith that it is predominantly and above all for His glory. Now that glory is seen, your faith is lifted up, and it's in understanding that that you understand it's for love. It's for love as it draws the eyes of faith towards His glory. It's for love. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so whenever the peculiar providence of God has arranged suffering, know that it is for glory, it is for love, it is for faith. And with such knowledge, with that kind of faith, you may loyally follow Christ, taking up your cross, not with grim, stoic determination, but with gladness. Knowing that on the other side of death is glory. You can take up your cross, assured of His love. Sinner, this sign is for you too. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. You, like every man, were stillborn in your sin. Spiritually dead. But Christ died in the stead of sinners and rose that they may have life. And so if now by His Word you are hearing Him call to you, reach out with the empty hands of faith in trust and cling to Christ. And if that happens, know you've already received resurrection life by His all-powerful Word. Let's pray. Holy Father, how stunning, how beautiful, how glorious Your Son is. He is the resurrection and the life. Death is a defeated foe beneath His feet, made but the, the means now. It's an empty, it's an enemy. It's not to be Painted with pretty colors. But it as a defeated foe is now the means to glory. Your glory. Our joy in that glory. And so Father. Build in us now the resolution to follow this Christ. With gladness. Knowing whatever your providence arranges for us, however peculiar your logic and its unfolding for our lives, we can be assured that it's for glory, it's for love, and it's for faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.